Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bhutang tamang sankhang namasami Welcome to another of these uh, Sunday afternoon talks uh, here at uh, Amravati the, during this uh, Basa period. So the theme for today's talk is, uh, is the Buddha alive today? I thought this was an interesting theme to explore and uh, so I'll offer a few reflections on this and uh, hopefully there'll be a benefit those who are gathered here and those who are uh, listening in, watching from from afar. The, uh, looking at this title, uh, the first thing that came to mind was a, a statement made, made by uh, Albert Einstein on a, a, an issue to do with uh, uh, the, the realm of physics. And when he was asked this particular question, his resp- or a question, not about the Buddha, but <laughs> a question about... Uh, the sort of fundamental physics of things, he said, the answer is yes or no, depending upon the interpretation. So that might be helpful or not helpful. <laughs> uh, but uh, I thought that's a, a good place to start. Depends on what we mean. Uh, what, do we, what do we mean by the word Buddha? And uh, also alive and, and uh, so on. Well, uh, considering this, uh, and what do we mean by by the word Buddha? Then also, what came to mind was um, uh, a uh, a pair of principles they have in the Japanese tradition. And forgive me if I pronounce this incorrectly. Which is jiriki and tariki. Uh, jiriki means self power or the internal power, and tariki means external or other power. I hope that's correct. Yes, I'm getting a nod from a Japanese representative here. So. <laughs> So, uh, so this is, a, a, say, a way of speaking about two uh, fundamental approaches towards spiritual practice, spiritual life, and religious understanding. So, uh, tariki, that other power, or looking uh, at religious religious structures in in terms of the source of of goodness, of strength, of power, of reality as being something other, something elsewhere that that then one calls upon. Uh, And so uh, in many, many religions, um, uh, the majority, I would say, of religious forms around the planet, uh, this uh, uh, aspect is is the most dominant one. So there are seen as being uh, deities or or a single all-powerful omniscient deity or or angels or... um, saints or um, bodhisattvas, avatars that are out there that are are called upon that we sort of look to as being the source of goodness, the source of strength, the source of protection and the the source of of reality. And um, the the religious process or the practices of devotion or spiritual commitment, spiritual training is uh, attuning the heart, the mind 
to those uh, other powers or that, uh, that other power, that uh, external quality, and inviting it to be present, uh, say, uh, trying to live in accordance with that principle, that, that, that quality that, that is out there, and uh, praying to those deities, those gods, those saints, those bodhisattvas, avatars, um, protective beings to help to be a source of good fortune, of blessing, of um, the, uh, 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 say the source of wholesome and good liberating qualities. And uh, certainly my own upbringing uh, in the Church of England Christianity, you know, growing up in this country in England, that was uh, very much the way that uh, the... Um, the kind of uh, Christian forms were, were put across. You, you, you pray to, to Jesus, you pray to God, um, and uh, that uh, is the, the kind of um, uh, so the model that, that, that one had growing up, at least in this country, Church of England Christianity in this country as was growing up in the 50s and 60s. But as we know, I'm praying for or appealing to external forces to, to help or to provide or to bring benefit, um, to be um, they are protective or supportive, um, to come and help out. Uh, sometimes it seems to be effective and sometimes it doesn't seem to be effective. Uh, one of my earliest disappointments with religious life was um, I think at the age of about four or five. Um, I grew up in, a, in quite a poor family, so we, uh, as children we only got presents on birthdays and Christmases. <laughs> That's the only time we ever got presents. Uh, and I think a Christmas was coming up, and I was maybe four or five years old, and um, and so I, I was I'd been going along to Sunday school, uh, be, uh, the um, uh, the the uh, local church Sunday school, and uh, I think I'd, I'd, I'd um, sort of locked onto the idea or the statement from the Bible where it says, "Ask and it shall be given unto you." So I thought, well, that sounds good. <laughs> so I want a fire engine for Christmas. And so I wanted a, a fire engine, not a full-size fire engine, just a, you know, a small one that you could pedal as a five-year-old. Um, so I prayed vigorously for a fire engine, and I didn't get one. <laughs> so that was one of my early disappointments with, with religion. I thought, well, he said, ask, yeah, ask and it'll be given unto you. I'm not trying to make fun of Christianity. I just, but my own, this was my own experience of like, hmm, well, I asked and I didn't get. So that's disappointing, and that's, you know, uh, why, you know, why was it like that? Or you know, why didn't I get what I was asking for? There's something. I'm, there's something going wrong here, right? or I'm missing something. That, that I'm not. I don't know the the whole picture. I haven't got the whole story. As since I was only you know, four or five years old, I probably wasn't doing too much um, abstract thinking <laughs> at that time. Probably just thought, no, oh, didn't get my fire engine. But uh, still, there was a sense of having uh, been told, oh, you can appeal to these invisible forces and, and they will help. And having appealed and, the, and the, the help or the thing that was wished for didn't appear, then the, the result was, was disappointment. So uh, that, um, say, that looking to external forces to help, to support, to provide, that's, that's very much a part of many religious forms. And... Uh, even though within the, say, the southern Buddhist world, um, there's nothing in the scriptures, uh, and also in nothing amongst the um, uh, the the, the uh, forest uh, tradition teachers that, that I know of, that I'm, I've been connected to, that would say, you know, pray to the Buddha and the Buddha will help out. There is nothing in the scriptures that 
that uh, suggests that or, 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 hit, or um, promotes that in any way, shape or form. But still you find within, within Buddhist cultures, as much in the southern Buddhist world as in the northern Buddhist world, still people you know, overlook the, um, the details of the texts uh, and the, the sort of precise wording of the of the Pali Canon, and people will still pray to to the the Buddha to uh, to come and protect them, or to help out, or to to help um, a family member to recover from an illness, or to help a a, a failing business, or to protect a new uh, a new house that is being uh, built, or such like, so that it's not it's not sort of <laughs> backed up by the scriptures, but still there's a strong human urge, like there are these invisible forces. Uh, around in the world, in, in the universe, and uh, hopefully they can they can lend a hand and, and help out. So that's very natural, very very uh, ordinary, very very normal for us. And so that um, and people would perhaps hope, oh, the Buddha, you know, the Buddha's still alive. The Buddha is still somewhere. <laughs> he can, uh, the, the Buddha is this great, wise, powerful being. He's uh, prob- probably, possibly, somewhere in some realm, and maybe the the, the Buddha can can help out with this. Uh, in this particular situation. I, I feel it's um, uh, uh, th- this way of forming things and, and putting the, the source of goodness and power and strength outside ourselves. And it's, uh, it's also strongly connected with what we call in in Buddhism, self-view, or in, in the Southern Buddhist uh, uh, tradition, the self-view or sakaya ditti, that um, you know, seeing the, the Buddha in terms of a person, uh, uh, this single, uh, uh, separate being um, that was uh, that was born and exists in the world and can be can be called upon, and so there is something in us that that likes to keep those precious and dear beings around. Like uh, again, I'm not trying to make fun or belittle other spiritual traditions, but calling upon saints or calling upon you know, deities um, or, or you know, great figures or prophets who have been in the world and sort of calling upon them to, to, to help out, to intercede, to, to be able to provide, um, say, protection and healing and such like. So it's a, it's a very strong, uh, say, impulse, but I do feel it's also based upon not wanting to, uh, or not being able to see beyond things in personal terms. We, we kind of want to hold on to those that are near and dear to us, those who have inspired us, those who seem to be important. We want to say that the feeling they're still around, they can still help, they can, their, their presence is still there, and that we, we want to believe or hold on to the idea that we haven't lost them, they're still somewhere, they're still around and can, can lend a hand. And when, when I was reflecting on this theme, I was reminded of... Um, the the poem that uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote about his friend John Keats. So, and John Keats died, I think, at the age of twenty-seven from tuberculosis. And uh, Shelley wrote this very long, sort of uh, 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 and beautiful uh, poem about uh, on the death of, of John Keats called called Adonais. And part of it refer sort of revolves around this idea of you know he hasn't really gone. You know, he's he's really. Uh, his body might have died, but really he, he's uh, still with us. And if I can remember <laughs> the, uh, the, the words of one, one particular verse or some verses goes, Peace, peace, he is not dead. He doth not sleep. He hath awakened from the dream of life. 
Tis we who, lost in stormy visions, with phantoms keep an unprofitable strife, and strike with our spirit's knife invulnerable nothings. We decay like corpses in a charnel. Pain and grief convulse us and consume us day by day, and cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay. He is made one with nature. His voice is heard in all her music, from the moan of thunder to the song of night's sweet bird, and so on and so on. <laughs> I don't know a lot more than that, but... <laughs> so, peace, peace, he, he is not dead, he doth not sleep, he hath awakened from the dream of life. Tis we who, lost in stormy visions, keep with phantoms and in, uh, in an, an unprofitable strife. So it's like, uh, yes, his friend John Keats has died, but really he's, he has become one with nature. He's, he, his voice is heard in all the music of nature, the, the rumbling of thunder, the moan of thunder, the, the song of, of night birds and, and so on. And so that it's very poetic, very beautiful, and, uh, and so that uh, and there might be an element of truth in it <laughs> as well. But uh, I feel that when we, we look upon great beings like the Buddha or the uh, saints, the avatars, uh, the great beings of the world, then we have this, this sense of, well, they're, they're still there. They've become one with nature or they're still around. We, can, we haven't lost them, really. Uh, but that still uh, hinges around the habits of self-view, me here and then those beings out there that, 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 uh, that can help. And so that uh, there's a... Uh, I feel a, 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 a narrowness of view in that, uh, and a, uh, it's a, uh, a way of holding things that isn't, I would say, particularly liberating. It still, in a way, puts us in a position of uh, vulnerability, of separation, of, of uh, incompleteness. Um, and so that it's a, uh, it, but also that um, that uh, idea of being one with nature. <laughs> And, uh, which is very common, uh, be, being one with everything, uh, that uh, the Buddha pointed out, yeah, that's, that's not a correct understanding. When, when a being is enlightened, to, to talk about them having sort of become one with the universe, the, the Buddha says, no, that's not correct to talk in that way. If you look at the, the first sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, the root of all things, he says that, he, he talks about that in that, in that same way. He said that, uh, that to, to, um, to say that one is, uh, um, uh, one is, uh, is they realize the all or become one with the all, A-double-L, with the all, that, uh, that's, not, that's not quite accurate, it's not quite right. That's, we, we, we think in those terms, we, we talk in those terms if we haven't really understand the truth of things. So again, that's still based around, you know, I have become one with the all, or I'm going to be <laughs> one with, with everything. And there's still these, uh, these elements, these seeds of me here, the world out there, this sort of basic delusion of subject-object separation. So uh, I feel all of these, these ways of speaking uh, say, are rooted in that, uh, say that, uh, the habits of thinking in terms of self-view of, of the solidity or the, the separateness of, of a person, even of a great person. And um, that also hinges around the, on the, the, the whole languaging of things in terms of the other power or the, a source of goodness or reality out there is, uh, is uh, say, forming a, a, a basis of separateness.
it's not saying that it can't be used as a, a helpful spiritual tool, but for myself, it it never uh, maybe because of the traumatic incident with, the, with not getting the fire engine at the age of five, but uh, but as I, I thought about things and or did more praying later on and, and seemed to get no result or no 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 contact no no sense of connection with with anything. Uh, the the uh, with any other kind of being or beings or, or that they just said hmm, this this can't be the whole picture. So the uh, the other spiritual approach that of jiriki the the inner power, when I started to come across these kind of what we might call mystical teachings, uh, when I was in my teens and then growing up and then particularly coming in in contact with this in terms of of Buddhist practice, then that made a, a lot more sense that really that. It's the, that source of reality, the source of power, the source of truth is really within yourself. Uh, and it's there also in the Christian teachings, like you know, Jesus saying, you know, the kingdom of God is within you. So it's not as though these, these uh, teachings are, are totally separate. But uh, that wasn't something that was ever emphasized or didn't make sense or wasn't, wasn't clarified when I was growing up. But coming in contact with Buddha Dhamma and then entering into monastic life and, and listening to the teachings of, uh, of Lumpur Cha and uh, the, uh, the, the um, Pali scriptures, then that made a lot more sense. Um, and uh, there's a, a very nice way that um, Joseph Campbell, who's a great historian, philosopher, mythologist, uh, put it um, in, in sort of relating these, uh, the, the, the sort of external gods and the, and the, the uh, ultimate reality to be uh, uh, to be known within, he said, um, the um, the uh, the ultimate nature of uh, that the uh, of the the God to which you refer is the ultimate reality of your own being. That to which the image of your God refers is the ultimate reality of your own being, and that is the being, the mystery of being of the world itself. That to which the, the image of your God refers is the, uh, the, the mystery, the ultimate reality of your own being. And so I felt that that phrases it very, very neatly, that, that um, we create images of a, a deity, a God, a, a, but uh, it's all, in a way that, that imagery <laughs> is referring to the fundamental nature of your own being. And sometimes when people hear this kind of statement, they can seem to be very, very inflated. Like so, you know, so you're, you know, you're saying that you are God or you're the Buddha, and it can seem like a kind of gigantic ego trip. But I feel that the whole, um, the, the the process of development of wisdom or insight within Buddhist practice, and the the process of liberation, it hinges around. Uh, in, a, in a sense, recognizing that ultimate reality of our own being, but not letting the uh, conceit or, or egotism to in, uh, take hold of that, but rather to to see that that ultimate, the, the fundamental nature of this being, this mind, this heart, is uh, the, the 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 same uh, ultimate reality of the uh, the images of our deities and gods and, and saviors is referring to, but. Uh, that that doesn't have to be co-opted by by uh, an inflated ego or uh, habits of conceit. But it is tricky to to um, to get a perspective on this when we say we we uh, let go of um, 
our, uh, our imagery of, of an external deity or external sort of protective, helpful forces, or, or a um, we uh, say drop that kind of a, of an idea, uh, it can feel very barren or very lonely or very very uncomfortable, or like uh, uh, say in um, uh, in the in the Theravada world, in say in the uh, in the the teachings of, of our own Ajahns, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Man, they would often point out when they would when they would talk about Nibbana or the realization of Nibbana or the possibility of not being born again, many people they're talking to would be quite put off by that. Like, like oh, I don't, I don't like the sound of that. I don't want to, I don't want to go to Nibbana. I'll, what about my family? Oh, I'll miss my friends. Or can I take my dog? You know, the, the, uh, there's a sense of, oh, I'll be in a state of, of lack or loss if, if uh, I go to Nibbana. There's nothing there. And so people are put off by that, and so that the because that that lack of reference points uh, or that lack of of say of, of otherness, if you like, then that seems to be a, a terrible loss. And I think, wow, it'd be incredibly lonely just to sort of to be me in Nibbana forever with 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 nothing there. And so that ooh, gives people the, the chills. But I'd say that's a, a, a radical misunderstanding, a, a misreading of it, because it's uh, in the process of, of the development of insight, there's a, there, uh, there's a falling away of the usual reference points, the things that we, we are familiar with. There's necessarily a letting go of that. And so all our, our usual ways of framing who we are, what we are, and what is sort of good and beautiful in the world, uh, those, those usual reference points fall away. It's like, like Lumpur Shah would ask that question. If you can't go forward and you can't go back, you can't stand still, where do you go? It's like, uh, there's, you know, you, all your usual reference points fall away. For, for the heart to be genuinely liberated, there needs to be a um, a letting go of of identity, of self view, of uh, uh, attachment to the self as the owner, as uh, in terms of being, in terms of doing, in terms of choosing. Uh, letting go of your personal story, your personal history, your your triumphs, your your crises, your 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 failures. Uh, it, all of that needs to be let go of. The mind needs to let go of time. Uh, it needs to let go of causality, cause and effect. It needs to let go of of location here and there, three dimensional space and form, even 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 space. Uh, uh, needs to be let go of form and formlessness, uh, location. All of that needs to be dropped. So uh, all of our usual reference points are uh, are gone. So it can seem like a terrible sort of uh, nothingness or <laughs> a terrible sense of loss, all the things that we, we take to be who, what, who and what we are, sort of beautiful and good and true and delightful. Uh, as uh, the Buddha says in the, in the scriptures, that there is that ayatara, that, that sphere of being, where there is no coming, no going, no standing still, no dying, no reappearance, no sun, no moon, no stars, no this world, no other world. <laughs> there is no, uh, uh, it has no... Um, and no, uh, no, it provides no support, it has no basis. Uh, and again, they can feel like, well, that sounds pretty lonely, pretty awful, pretty barren. Yeah. <laughs> but then he also says at the end of that teaching in the Udana, and this, I tell you, is the end of suffering. This is, this is the end of dukkha. So uh, all that, know this, know that, know this, know that, uh, are 
the conditioned senses around what we take to be good and true and valuable and beautiful, it can seem like, well, what, you know, what am I left with? <laughs> What's there to, to be comforting or to be helpful, to be, to be beautiful and good? Um, so that, uh, but I would say that uh, uh, that sense of loss uh, or challenge or threat or, or fear is coming from the conditioning of the mind based on self-view. On, on I am the body, I am the personality, uh, this is my name, this is when I was born, this is my family history, uh, this is, uh, this is my, my life and who and what I'm doing. Taking those, those qualities to be absolutely true and real uh, in the face of that attachment to self-view then no sun, no moon, no stars, no coming, no going, no standing still, no dying, no reappearance, no this world, no other world. <laughs> it all seems like a, a terrible loss. But then why would the Buddha say, this, I tell you, is the end of suffering? Or point to that as you know, the, the, uh, the way of indicating the ultimate reality, the, the, the fundamental reality of things, and how that is, uh, that is radically, completely liberating and freeing to the heart. And that um, uh, also, when he, he when talking about um, about this this quality, uh, so you one who awakens to that quality and the the realization of that quality, he call, also calls it unutterable bliss. <laughs> when he's talking about the uh, Dabba Maliputta, when he passes away, he says this is. Uh, this is the experience or the knowing of, of uh, unutterable bliss, inexpressible bliss and, and delight. So it's mysterious or it's challenging because uh, these familiar reference points of time, identity, location, uh, even language, uh, you know, these uh, familiar structures all are falling away. Um, it can seem like there is nothing, <laughs> nothing left. Well, who are we if we're not this? Uh, what, what's, what's left? But what remains is the quality of awareness. In a way, it's a freeing of awareness, a freeing of the, the knowing heart. And that's the, the essence of this, this, this teaching. And when we ponder this question, um, is the Buddha alive today? <laughs> then this is uh, sort of the, 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 um, the essential element of that, I would say, is that uh, when, uh, when Lumpur Cha will be talking about this, he would say quite directly, "Yeah, the Buddha is alive, <laughs> not the, or the Buddha as a person, as in as in Gautama Buddha, who was born in uh, in Lumbini and uh, and lived and talked and walked around India two and a half thousand years ago." But he would say, "Yeah, the Buddha is alive. Don't you know the Buddha hasn't gone anywhere?" And then uh, you know, if you look in his teachings, say in the, in the collected teachings, there's uh, Lumpur Chan never gave, never had titles for his talks. We, we give, we come up with titles for these Sunday talks. But Lumpur Chan, I don't think ever, ever gave a talk with a title. People, us disciples of his, gave gave titles to his talks later on after he given them. So in the talk that's known as called No Abiding, and then um, another one called Dhamma Nature. If you look in the collected teachings of his, then he makes this kind of statement uh, quite. Quite in a quite straightforward way. So the Buddha is still alive. You know, the, the Buddha hasn't gone anywhere, uh, and he would often quote the the dialogue between the Buddha and Vakali, who was a, a, a disciple, a monk uh, of the Buddha's community, uh, as Vakali was was passing away, and and the Buddha uh, heard that Vakali was very ill and uh, couldn't 
uh, couldn't uh, uh, say uh, leave his kuti. He was uh, dying of uh, some kind of uh, fatal illness. So the Buddha went to see Vakali in his kuti and Isigili. And uh, so Vakali was was a bit distressed that he couldn't get up and, and pay respects to the Buddha because he was so weak. He couldn't get off his couldn't get off his deathbed. And so the Buddha said, "Please, please don't don't distress yourself. Just just to stay where you are. You know that uh, uh, please don't don't try to get up. Don't try to bow to me." And um, <clears throat> and then Vakali uh, said, "Oh, I'm you know, I'm so sorry. I haven't been I've been so ill. I haven't been able to come and see you for a long, long time." Um, and uh, then the Buddha made this, this comment, uh, you know, there's no need to think that way, Vakali. One who sees me sees the Dhamma, one who sees the Dhamma sees me. And that was a very, very, uh, um, uh, say, common uh, quotation that Lumpur Chah would refer to. He said, one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha, one who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. So when, the, when Lumpur Chah would make the comment, you know, the Buddha is still alive or the Buddha is still here today, it would be on the basis, you know, the Buddha is the Dhamma. If you see the Buddha, you see the Dhamma. The, the, the Buddha is uh, the Satchatama, the true reality. So that and that, that that Dhamma, that reality, hasn't gone anywhere. It's timeless. It's always here. It's ever present. So in that respect, the Buddha is the Dhamma. So the Dhamma, and Dhamma hasn't gone anywhere. The Dhamma is always here. So in that respect, the, the the Buddha is alive today. The Buddha is here, but uh, not the, uh, the the person of the Buddha, that kind of external form of the Buddha, but this inner quality of, of of wakeful awareness, uh, uh, in the uh, Thai language, uh, when they're describing the qualities of the Buddha, puru, puda, and pubertban. So puru mean literally means the one who knows. So that's often a, a, a term that's used to refer to the quality of, of awareness. And Lumpur would would stress that when we take refuge in the Buddha, Buddhang Saranangachami. He would, he would say, and, and I repeat this over and over, so those of you who've <laughs> listened to my Dhamma talks or, or when I'm doing the, um, uh, say, giving the precepts Sunday morning, Saturday morning, um, to, uh, when people come to visit, I'll often say you know, that, that when we take refuge uh, in the Buddha, Bhutang Saranangachami, it doesn't mean just trusting the, uh, the, the teachings of Gautama Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago, or taking uh, Gautama Buddha as our guide, as our spiritual mentor, as a, a, a being of worthy of great reverence and um, and respect, which he which he hears that that person certainly yeah, that that great being is uh, ultimately worthy of of respect, reverence, and devotion. But uh, as Lumpur Chawa point out, the the Buddha, which is a refuge, you know, a refuge is a safe place. An idea of a being who lived two and a half thousand years ago, that idea is not a refuge. Or the image, like a bronze image up on a shrine, that's not a refuge, it's a statue. It's a, it can represent certain qualities, but in itself, that the idea of the Buddha, the memory of the Buddha, even the words of the Buddha, they're not a refuge in and of themselves. But rather, what is a refuge is a safe place here and now. It's a, a genuine place of security. So uh, Lumpur Chah would stress that the, the refuge, the Buddha refuge, is this very quality of, of awareness, this quality of, of knowing that is say, accessible to us uh, here and now.
the um, uh, in, in the the, um, the the teachings you have the, the the way that the Buddha points to that uh, himself uh, in that sort of not confusing that quality of awareness with the qualities of the person and uh, so uh, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to to the Lord Buddha and say that you know that by by taking refuge in in the, the Buddha we are uh, we're not say um, we're not looking to the historical being as uh, that main source of security and and blessing and protection but rather even in his own life in his own words the Buddha emphasized this uh, that uh, don't mistake the qualities of the person with the actuality of that that. Uh, that Buddha quality itself, that that knowing awakened awareness itself, and uh, uh, I often quote this uh, dialogue but, uh, of the Buddha with with Vachagota. So Vachagota was a, a wanderer from a, from a different group, a different sect that frequently came to see the Buddha and um, would ask him various different uh, philosophical questions. Eventually, he became a disciple of the Buddha and became an arahant. So there's a whole sort of collection of Vachagota teachings which are quite uh, delightful, wonderful in themselves. I think on a Sunday talk a, few year, a couple of years ago we had them. The questions of Vachagota was a whole theme for a Sunday talk. <laughs> Be somewhere in the records. But uh, anyway, so uh, in this particular dialogue uh, it's called Vachagota and Fire. And so Vachagota has come to, to the Buddha and has asked him, you know, what happens to an enlightened being at the end of their life, uh, the death of the body, where does an enlightened being go? Um, and then he says, do they reappear in a different realm? And the Buddha says, vacha, reappear, does not apply. He said, well, do they not reappear in another realm? And the Buddha says, does not reappear, that doesn't apply either. And then to sort of complete the, the whole picture, he said, well, do they both reappear and not reappear? The Buddha said, they, uh, that doesn't apply either. And then the last one of the set is, well, do they neither reappear in another realm, uh, or nor, nor do they not reappear in another realm? And the Buddha said, that doesn't apply either. So Vajragata is confused, and he said, well, this, one of these has got to be true. One of these has got to apply. You know, this so covers every possible angle, reappearing, not reappearing, both reappearing and not reappearing, neither reappearing nor not reappearing. So, <laughs> that's got to be... That's got to be uh, say, uh, the, the representing the reality somehow. And the Buddha said, no, you're, you're asking the question in a way that presumes a reality that doesn't exist. So he said, so much is, if we had a little fire burning here made of, grass and, of stick, grass and sticks burning away, and then we let the fire go out, and I asked you the question, where did the fire go, north, south, east, or west, what would you reply? And then he would say, he replied, well, I would say that the, the, the way the question is put implies a reality that doesn't exist. The fire didn't go north, south, east, or west. It just went out. And the Buddha said, exactly. <laughs> the way you put the question presumes a reality that doesn't exist. So reappears, doesn't apply, does not reappear, doesn't apply, and so forth. So, uh, and this is, it takes a bit of reflection and contemplation to understand what the, the Buddha's pointing to here, but I feel it's one of the most profound and helpful teachings in the Pali Canon. So I, I repeat it regularly <laughs> for my own reflection as well as for other people. I even have it sort of pinned up on the wall in my kuti. So he said, uh, 
so vajagota, so vajra, the uh, that material form uh, which one t- trying to describe uh, uh, the the tathagata uh, would describe him. So that that body or that material form by which one trying to the, to describe the tathagata would describe him, like saying the tathagata is tall, or he's good looking, or he's uh, uh, he is. Uh, say he used to be a soldier, that material form, uh, that feeling, that vedana, that perception, that sanya, that mental, those mental formations, that consciousness whereby one trying to describe the Tathagata uh, would describe them, that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence and rendered incapable of arising in the future. Uh, the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of form, in terms of the body, in terms of feeling, in terms of perception, in terms of mental formations, in terms of consciousness. So the, the usual reference points that you would talk about a person, that they are Indian or they're English or they're Thai or they're French or German, uh, they're tall, they're short, they're dark, they're, they're, they're light... Uh, they are awake, they are asleep, they are healthy, they are sick. Uh, I know them, I don't know them. Uh, all these uh, usual reference points, none of those apply. So they're, they're cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. So all the, new, the, the usual reference points we have for talking about each other, uh, old, young, tall, short, female, male, uh, I know them, I don't know them, None of that applies. All that's been cut off, cut off at the root and so forth. Uh, the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in those terms. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So in that expression, the Tathagata, there, there is a quality there. <laughs> that there is this quality, the Tathagata, which literally means the one thus come, thus gone, come to suchness, uh, gone to suchness that there is a quality there, uh, that there's a reality to that quality of Tathagata, uh, which is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. But you can't reckon that, you can't measure that, you can't describe that, you you can't imagine that using the familiar reference points of the five khandhas, or like I was saying earlier, in terms of time or identity, in terms of location, space, uh, formula, form or formlessness, cause and effect, none of that applies. Uh, but there is this quality of the Tathagata. <laughs> so in terms of this, this question, is the Buddha alive today? Uh, and how that can be uh, a, sort of a useful question to us, and why I thought this is... Uh, an interesting and valuable topic is pointing to that uh, that quality of awakened awareness. The, the Buddha uses the word tathagata to refer to himself. I would say another way of referring to that that is the 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 element of awareness, the vija datu, or the the uh, the 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 element of knowing, the element of awareness. That is what is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. It's present, like right now. There's a knowing of this moment, whether it's me looking at the, the microphone and the camera and the, the temple from this Dhamma seat, or the people sitting here in the temple, or the people watching this on your various screens, on your phone or your computer or whatever. Where, um, that uh, there is this quality of knowing. 
And that knowing, it knows the body, it knows feelings and perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, it knows the inner world, the outer world, but that knowing has no personal qualities. It's not female or male, it's not old or young, it's not uh, healthy or sick, it doesn't have an age or even a location. It's not anywhere, it doesn't have a shape, nor is it shapeless. <laughs> shape doesn't apply, place doesn't apply, time doesn't apply. Cause and causality doesn't apply. Language doesn't even apply. <laughs> Makes it even more tricky to talk about. But uh, all those usual reference points are fallen away or don't apply, but there is this awake, aware quality that knows. And that uh, when we talk about the Buddha refuge, or, or the, the, um, the when we say, Buddhang Saranangachami, I go to the Buddha for refuge, it's drawing upon that awake, aware quality, letting that be the, uh, the, the, the ground of, of experience. Uh, that taking refuge in that quality is being that awake, aware quality, being that knowing, without that then becoming a person, without that being a, a me, <laughs> yeah, a, a monk who's aware, or a man who's aware, or an English person who's aware, or a Ajahn Amro who's aware, but rather there is awareness that knows the qualities of the world this Sunday afternoon uh, here in uh, Amravati, or that knows the feelings of coolness or warmth and colors and shapes and forms and sounds. It knows those aspects of the world. It knows the aspects of this being, that the sensations of my, my legs or my, my hands, my, uh, my face, my, my shoulders. Uh, the, it knows sensations, it knows perceptions, it knows moods and thoughts and, and ideas. It knows the personal qualities, but that which knows the person isn't a person. It's not male or female, it's not old or young, it's not <laughs> tall or short, it's not, it doesn't have a nationality or an age. Uh, it's, uh, it's unimaginable, the mind can't create an image, but it is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So there's a, an isness, uh, a suchness, but uh, even using words like isness or suchness, <laughs> in a way putting too much form into the mix, but they, they indicate that that quality has a, a presence, has a reality. There's a, 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 a dimension of, of, uh, of being um, uh, that uh, is, say, of a different order than the ordinary everyday being of being a man, being a woman, being old, being young, being English, being French, being Thai or German or, or Chinese or Indian. And in the Pali language, the, there are two verbs to be. There is hoti, which is the being uh, of, uh, say, today is Sunday, or I am Ajahn Amaro, that being in time and being in the realm of cause and effect and, and duality of here and there, uh, subject and object. And the other, uh, the other verb to be is ati, ati. And so when the Buddha makes those statements, like there is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, uh, if there was not the the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the, un, the unformed, then no liberation from the cre the born, the created, the, uh, the originated, the formed would be possible. Uh, but because there is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, therefore liberation is possible from the the, the, the born, the the originated, the the um, the, the formed, etc. So the, in those teachings, or there is that ayatana, that sphere of being, whereas 
There is neither dying nor reappearance. There is no sun, no moon, no stars. The isness uh, 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 that is uh, they referred to uh, in relationship to those qualities, the Buddha uses the, the verb ati. So that's a, a quality of being that implies a transcendent and uh, a, a being outside of the realm of time and individuality and, and causality. That's a, maybe a, a little bit challenging to get one's head around, but I do feel it's a, a helpful uh, distinction to make, that uh, there are different kinds of being, the being in time and the being which is timeless. And so that even though that might be hard to imagine or hard to, to get a, a, a genuine feeling for, that is the... <laughs> That's the, the, the pathway to liberation, that's the, the, the door to liberation, to recognize that quality of, of timeless knowing, that tatata, that tatagata, that, uh, that which has gone to suchness, come to suchness, that is a quality of being that is accessible to us. And when we say Buddhang Saranangachami, going to, to refuge, going for refuge to the Buddha, it's choosing to be awake, choosing to be aware, choosing to, to say, embody that uh, that awakened knowing quality, the the, the vijjadatu. Another of Lumpur Cha's helpful statements, uh, and which kind of refers to well, how do we develop that? How do we <laughs> how do we go for refuge? How do we cultivate that? And taking refuge or embodying that that quality of awareness, how can that be developed? How can that be sustained? How uh, how can that be sort of um, that refuge genuinely be be taken? And uh, in another of his teachings, the one I think it was called the uh, Still Flowing Water. Again, in his collected teachings, he makes this this very uh, cryptic statement where he says, "Uncertainty is the Buddha." And like, like the Buddha himself, Lumpur Cha was very skilled at making sort of <laughs> attention-grabbing attention comments. That, huh? What does, he, what does he mean by that? that? Uncertainty is the Buddha. So you think, well, hang on a minute. The Buddha is about truth and certainty and, and reality. But uh, he made this, this comment. Uncertainty is the Buddha. Kwam Mainer. The, the uh, uncertainty or... Uh, uh, the 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 truth of anicca, uh, impermanence, uncertainty. He said, uncertainty is the Buddha because uh, if one sees the Buddha, one sees the Dhamma. If one sees the Dhamma, one sees the Buddha. So the Buddha is the Dhamma. Uh, again, using that that same principle, the Dhamma is the uh, unwavering truth of uh, that all things are uncertain. Yeah, the, that's the fundamental nature of all things. Sabe, sankara, anicca, all things. Are uncertain, they're in a state of change. Sabe sankara anicca, because everything is anicca, uh, it's uncertain what they're going to change into. Everything is in a state of change, what they will change into is not a sure thing. So all things are uncertain. So in this respect, he said, uh, uncertainty is the Buddha. So the mind that knows that all things are uncertain is that Buddha mind, that awake, aware mind that sees that uh, 
the, uh, the, the world of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, it's in a, a constant state of change and it's not known what it'll change into. All things are necessarily uncertain. And the heart that knows that, the, the mind that genuinely knows that quality of uncertainty, that fluidity, that transiency, and is attuned to that, that uncertainty, that is the uh, awake, aware mind. So it knows uncertainty, it knows that quality of unreliability in the world of forms and perceptions. So it's not relying on any particular object, any sight or sound or smell or taste or touch or thought or any aspect of the, the, the body or the material world, it, because it knows that the, the, these things are unreliable, they're in a state of change, they are, they're not a refuge. Um, so I feel that's a very uh, helpful sort of entry point, <laughs> how to develop the, the, the Buddha refuge. If the Buddha is alive, that, that, that quality of awake, uh, awake and aware uh, knowing is alive, why that's important and why that's valuable is that it, it provides this quality of, of security and a quality of great freedom. Because when the heart embodies that quality of awareness and lets go of reliance upon seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, then regardless of what the world does in terms of, of comfort or discomfort or, or things being what you expect or what you don't expect, the heart is, is uh, supremely adaptable because it's not relying upon particular feelings or, or perceptions or, or particular outcomes. Whatever the world does, the heart is not shaken or confused or limited or burdened or stressed by whatever, the, whatever happens in terms of the experiential field. Though, again, using Lumpur Cha as, a, as an example, when, when I was living in Thailand, somebody once made the comment about him, said, you know, I really think a bomb could go off in the, in the, in the sala, and Ajahn Chah, wouldn't, it wouldn't disturb him in the slightest. It, it, uh, he was, he's really that sort of clear and unshakable. Even if a bomb went off, you know, he, he would know, he would be uh, aware of that, but it wouldn't confuse or uh, upset or, or disturb him. Um, so that that, uh, that uh, reflection upon uncertainty uh, and, uh, say, using that it, uh, as a principle to, to train our hearts to guide us, it's a way of, of uh, examining all the things that we tend to, <laughs> to take to be certain like our, uh, our possessions, or our routine, or the people around us, or our health, or the weather, or the, the political situation, or, or the um, food supply, or uh, people's emotions, and, uh, and our relationships uh, with our family, and uh, things that we take for granted, things that we are unconsciously invested in. It was like this today, so it'll be like that tomorrow. Um, it's not a sure thing. So that that recollection of uncertainty, cultivating that mind that, that knows uncertainty, is it's it's often challenging to the ego. It's the, to the habits of self view. It can be threatening. It's like don't say that. You know, even using those words like oh, we we take for granted our, our health or our possessions or our relationships. And we can hear those words and. And think it's we're gonna we're we're, we're tempting fate, or we're gonna spook things by uh, 
say, looking at the, the possibilities of things being fragile or unstable or uncertain. But it's always been that way. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a surprise. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the body's nature is extremely fragile and, and delicate. We, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to be. Uh, the, uh, you know, I'm presuming that the, uh, the, the video connection and the power supply will keep going. It's now 2.51, <laughs> seconds. Uh, that the power will keep going until this this uh, teaching is finished and the, we had the time for the, for the questions by half past three. But I don't know. <laughs> Suddenly the power can go off and the whole thing can go kaput, and then the Sunday afternoon talk is over. It can it can happen in a second. Yet we don't know. So cultivating the the perception of uncertainty, the anicca sanya, this is it's threatening to the ego. But simultaneously, it's liberating to the heart that that which is that that in us which says, "Oh, don't say that! Or don't talk about your health failing or things breaking down! Like don't don't spook things in that way! Don't tempt fate!" That's uh, coming very much from, again from the habits of self-view of trying to take refuge in this person and, and having things predictable and uh, as we know them, but. Uh, the 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 heart the, the the natural wisdom of the heart knows well of course <laughs> of course it's uncertain of course it's unstable it never has been predictable or secure it, it uh, that that's the way things have always been and that's how they always will be that's the nature of the world so that it, it's simultaneously threatening to the ego and the habits of self view but freeing to the heart, freeing uh, and liberating the, that in, in us which recognizes, of course, ah. and then that, uh, the, say, letting go of that, the habit of trying to find security in that which is insecure, trying to find predictability in that which is unpredictable, trying to find stability in that which, unsta- which is unstable, sort of letting go of that, that, an- that anxious, fretful hope and we feel relief. There's a, a spaciousness and an ease that we find. So uh, again, Lumpur Cha would encourage these very simple practices of whenever the mind makes a judgment, this is good, that's bad, or or, you know, or tomorrow I'm going to uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to be doing this, or I've got uh, we've got a meeting scheduled to, to do that, um, and so I'm going to be seeing this person or that person. Uh, just to ask yourself the question, is that so? Or when we make judgments about each other, this person is unhappy or this person is happy, is that so? <laughs> uh, you know, when people say, how are you? They say, well, I'm very well, is that so? Uh, so cultivating that perception of anicca uh, in a mysterious way, that's what strengthens the 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 refuge uh, in the in the Buddha. If, if we if the Buddha is, the Buddha as in the quality of awareness that is alive and and uh, accessible today, the access to that uh, that uh, the Buddha within that that Buddha knowing is through the gateway of of uncertainty. Uh, the uh, as Lumpur Chah would call it, the, uh, the the pathway of the noble ones, yeah? the the attitude of the noble ones. It's a it's a strange chemistry, but by remembering, it's un, it's un, it's not a sure thing. It's uncertain. Uh, then 
that brings the heart uh, in tune with that awake, aware quality. It drops its habitual attachments to self-view and the the, uh, the compulsive taking refuge in our in our routines, our objects, our body, our mind states, and and so on and so forth. So just to to bring to mind that question: Is that so? When we and if you make this as a deliberate practice. Say, okay, every time my mind makes a judgment during today, I'll ask the question, is that so? If you, if you set that in place as an intention at the beginning of a day, it can be really startling how many judgments the mind makes during the course of a day. I haven't actually sort of counted them one by one, but when I, many years ago, Lumpur Sumato was talking about this and, and sort of suggesting this as a practice, and so I, I tried it out. And it's really a real eye-opener. It's like, wow, <laughs> I guess hundreds, hundreds of times during the course of a day, the mind says, I like this, I don't like that, this is good, that's bad, uh, this person is, is this way, this person is that way, I'm this way, I'm that way. It's uh, astonishing how uh, repeatedly the mind makes these judgments and then believes in the judgments that it makes. It, uh, we, uh, we assume because we think something and we make a, a judgment, this is good, that's bad, this is beautiful, that's ugly, this is delicious, this is, this is awful, then we take those to be true. So just by getting a perspective on, on how many judgments the mind makes, asking that kind of a question, is that so? Is that a sure thing? Is that the whole story? Then there's a, each time there's a, sp- a spaciousness, there's an opening up, there's an unburdening that, uh, that we experience. And, the other practice I like to encourage is even even simpler than than asking "Is that so?" is um, it's a bit more blunt, but again, this was one of uh, one of Lumpocha's uh, encouragements. Would it would just be to to think the word "so"? This is great. So this is awful. So yeah, this is exactly what I wanted. So this is exactly what I didn't want. So. I don't know what I'm going to do today, so I know exactly what I'm going to do today, so. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of automatic deflator. <laughs> it's a, it uh, pulls the plug on our, our plans or our ideas or our, our enthusiasms or, or, and also our, our, our anxieties and, and aversions. It uh, repeatedly, continually puts them in perspective. And whereas... Um, the, the assumption of our patterns of thinking is uh, it's a good thing or, or the, therefore uh, this is something I can do or something I, can get, I, I need to get away from. Just by reflecting so, it, it dissolves the, the, the habits of self-view around liking and disliking, uh, about and taking action and attitudes, all of that. And it's a sort of practice, you only get a real sense of how it works if you apply it, taking it seriously, putting it to, into to practice, and then you realize, oh, this is, this is a genuinely taking refuge in awareness, being, uh, being awake, being aware. There's a, in that moment of, of saying so, or is that so, then there's a... Uh, a clarification that the, the things that, that, that uh, distort or confuse that quality of awareness, they fall away, even if it's just for a moment. They, they fall away, and that awake, aware quality is, is unobstructed. The heart knows, oh right, of course, <laughs> it's, it's no big thing, or what makes that special, or uh, yeah, that's, that's not a sure thing, it couldn't be a sure thing. Ah, 
And that, huh, that, that is the peace of the mind, free of clinging, free of identification, free of, of those, those habits of, of, uh, of self and other. It's a, a heart that is free of grasping. So in, in terms of, of uh, the, the theme today, yeah, is the Buddha alive today? Then uh, rather than sort of looking to the Buddha as some kind of invisible deity that, that can provide protection, so praying to the, please, you know, please Buddha, protect me, uh, which one would say from a very, I would say, materialistic or uh, an attitude based on self-view that you know, the Buddha is somehow this invisible being out there who might offer protection, rather than please Buddha, protect me, um, it's uh, much more uh, be awake now. <laughs> Be awake, be aware, and trust in that awareness. That's the, where the real protection comes from, because if the heart genuinely embodies that quality of awakened awareness, then, then nothing can go wrong. You're, you're, you're healthy or you're sick. You're, you live or you, or you die. Uh, you're praised or you're criticized. Things go as you wish or they don't go as you wish. Uh, there's uh, nothing to be afraid of. Nothing can be lost. Nothing can be can be harmed. There is a fundamental refuge is, is established. So I offer these thoughts today for reflection. So a couple of questions were sent in um, today for this um, this session. Dear Ajahn Amaro, first of all, thank you so much for sharing the gift of Dhamma, etc., etc. Uh, my question is hopefully somewhat related to the topic of this week's Sunday talk and is about the relationship between the Dhamma and the findings of modern evolutionary science and psychology. In the past few years, I've noticed there's a school of thought emerging. Robert Wright's Why Buddhism is True book is a prime example that connects dukkha to the feeling of near-permanent biological dissatisfaction, which serves as an impulse to consume and procreate, and the doctrine of no-self to the evolutionary modular, quote-unquote, theory of the mind. It also highlights the limitations of the human senses in accessing the true nature of reality, pointing out that our understanding of the world is just a function of our sensual intellectual apparatus, which in turn was developed purely as a survival tool and therefore has a number of evolutionary biases built into it. I'm wondering what you make of these efforts to connect the theory of evolution and modern science more broadly and the Buddha's teachings. Do you think these types of insights can be helpful on the path to liberation? Thank you in advance. I wish you great health and happiness. Um, yeah, so coincidentally, uh, I'm quite fond of Robert Wright's uh, writings. <laughs> um, he did a book a number of years ago called The Moral Animal, and that was my introduction to evolutionary psychology. And I felt it was very insightful, very, very helpful. And uh, pointing out how many of our human activities and uh, attitudes and, and forms of relationship in the human realm are really just sort of the evolutionary overspill of functioning as a, a sort of tribal animal, uh, living like a group of baboons or chimpanzees or you know, tribal creatures. 
of that nature and that um, the uh, appreciating that um, that perspective uh, I know there's, there's various issues around evolutionary psychology and it has been somewhat um, co-opted by various people who have got some pretty uh, uh, sort of unskillful unwholesome uh, attitudes uh, and uh, so sort of uncompassionate and, and uh, divisive but uh, in general uh, when uh, reading um, say the moral animal and then also I was listening to a talk of Robert Wright's uh, a year or so ago uh, I do feel it's it's valuable and it gives us a perspective on the human condition our human relationships and seeing them in a in a context of a, of a natural order how we we sort of function in relationship to uh, to each other, and that a lot of what drives us are those sort of primal urges to to uh, to find food, uh, to protect our resources, to uh, say bond together with the other members of our of our troop, our tribe, and to protect them, to keep dangerous forces uh, away, to to procreate the species. These are sort of biological imperatives, uh, forces. In the uh, in the sort of living world, and that the more that they are able to to be appreciated as well, this is just the, the they say the karmic result of our human birth and our, our ancestry. Then we see them, uh, we take them all in a much less personal way. So, uh, as Lumpur Sumato would put it, you know, don't take your life personally. <laughs> so when we see that uh, you know, our our loves, our hates, our, our sort of protective urges. Our ambitious urges, our competitive urges, uh, our relationship to food or to sexual desire or to you know, competition and so forth. These are just, the, in a way, the the uh, the, um, uh, the the resonances of our animal ancestry. It, it helps the mind to see it far more in terms of nature. We see the impulses of our mind, our, our conditioning, uh, far more as a collection of. Of patterns in in the natural order, rather than taking it personally, like I've got a problem with greed, or I've got a problem with possessiveness, or I'm really competitive, and uh, all those I am's, or and uh, I don't want to be competing with the other monks, or <laughs> why should I be the best monk, you know, and or, or resenting somebody else who's who's uh, who's uh, more uh, competent than me at this and that. I don't want to be that way, but just seeing how. Those urges towards competition or towards sort of protectiveness—how you know our monastery is more important than somebody else's monastery because this is our tribe, you know, our group, our troop—not like that other lot. <laughs> that these uh, that those powerful urges and perceptions are, are just conditioned aspects of the natural order. We don't have to take them personally. You don't have to see um, there's liking and disliking, protectiveness, competition. Jealousy, um, say, or, or even uh, the sense of, um, uh, uh, say, belonging to a particular place or how uh, particular uh, things we call good. Seeing how, yeah, that's uh, this is the conditioning of our, our animal ancestry, and uh, we don't have to take it personally. And when we change from a, a self-centered perspective to a to a nature-centered perspective. <laughs> Then, exactly as I was saying in this talk, we're we're letting go of self-view. We're not seeing life and our mind and our field of experience just in terms of self-view. We're not taking it personally, but rather, oh, this is the feeling of anger, or this is the feeling of belonging, or this is the feeling of jealousy, or this is the feeling of of delight. This is the feeling of of loving a friend. This is the feeling of heartbreak when a friend dies. 
that it's it's recognizing this is the the flow of of a field of experience of functioning according to natural laws. So things are still sweet and bitter, uh, but they the heart isn't taking them personally, and so there's a way that it can all be known and appreciated, can be attuned to and learned from, but without any of it being limiting or, or, or burdensome. So I, I feel that a number of the insights coming from evolutionary psychology in particular, and then also the other part of it was, let's see, was um, the limitations of the human senses in accessing the true nature of reality, pointing out that our understanding of the world is just a function of our sensual intellectual apparatus, um, yeah, I, not only do I agree on uh, with that, I just wrote a book about that <laughs> called uh, "The Mind Is What Matters," uh, about exactly that the sort of phenomenal, phenomenological approach of the Buddha, saying you know, the the world that we experience is not the world; it's this mind's representation of the world. Like, you know, the, the world that uh, that I see is not the world; it's just this mind's way of putting together. Uh, a, a, an image of the world so we, we feel like oh, I'm experiencing the world as it is but none of us do <laughs> according to our, our education our family conditioning our siblings uh, the, uh, the events that have happened in our life the language that we speak uh, all of that has its effect so that the, the mind puts together this particular perception of the world just like I'm sitting here up in the Dhamma seat Everyone here in the temple is sitting in a different spot. So we are, we're all experiencing a different temple, simply according to the different spots that we're sitting in around the temple. Those of you who are listening in, watching this from, from a, a distance, yeah, you're, you're in your own homes or on your bus or in, you're sitting on a, on, a, on a train or in a park somewhere. And you know, your, your experience of the world is put together from where you are and, and how you're, you're experiencing things uh, conditioned by your, the choices that you've made to be where you are in this moment. So each one of us doesn't experience the world, each one of us experiences the mind's representation of the world. So when that's appreciated, and I, one of the reasons I feel this is very important and helpful, it sort of lowers the level of conceit. It's just because I experience it, it doesn't mean it's the whole story. <laughs> or that when it's, it's, things are realized to be of that nature, then uh, it's like, well, why should my mind be representing the, the world in a more accurate or more real way than your mind? You know, just because my mind says this is beautiful and your mind says this is ugly, why should my mind's interpretation be the correct one? <laughs> so that it, when this uh, phenomenological uh, say, approach is, is taken, it, one of the results is a lot more compassion, you know, a lot more uh, say, appreciation that your point of view can only be one perspective and that you find a lot more of compassion for other people's experience of the world. You know, if you're with someone who is easily, uh, they take everything as a threat and they're, they're feeling very anxious, then you can say to them, well, there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> but then... For that, from their side, yes, there is. There's a lot to worry about because their mind is is prone to seeing things in uh, from a perspective of things that are dangerous and difficult. So, just because my mind might say there's nothing to worry about, why should that be the whole story? Why should that be the defining take on 
the reality. But instead, when we see, well, my mind says there's nothing to worry about, but this other good person, you know, his mind is saying there's a lot to worry about. This is really, really concerning. And uh, so then there's a, an empathy, a compassion that you, uh, you're able to genuinely appreciate the, the point of view, the experience of others, not in a condescending, patronizing way, but in a general, genuine, heartfelt, uh, uh, empathi- uh, empathetic way. So I feel that these um, perspectives are, are very, uh, very helpful, very beneficial if they're they're held in the, a skillful fashion. Again, I, I, I've heard that uh, there has been some sort of uh, interpretations of evolutionary psychology and ways of sort of um, uh, uh, creating harmful attitudes, destructive and divisive attitudes. So it's not something that's intrinsically perfect and. and uh, and good in and of itself, but if it's used in a in a skillful way and understood in uh, in the context of, of dhamma, I would say then it can be yeah, very uh, very helpful, very illuminating. Second question was: um, Is the Buddha, uh, as the one who knows, only alive as a function of the degree of awareness someone has at any given moment? So the Buddha is alive on a hypothetical spectrum from not alive, no awareness, to completely alive, full awareness. I hope that question makes sense. Uh, yeah, very much so. That's a good question. <laughs> I didn't actually think of this angle, so congratulations on uh, coming up with um, something that uh, hadn't crossed my mind. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's a... Um, I would say yeah, the, the Buddha is alive, <laughs> as in that, that awareness is uh, alive insofar as... Uh, if the mind is is filled with its opinions and views and is not drawing upon that, then that the, that uh, that Buddha quality is is inaccessible, and so it's, effectively it's not not present or is is not uh, not alive as a uh, 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 sort of a, an informing presence in the mind. So I would say that's a uh, this is one way of of looking at that that issue. Um, I would say that. Uh, uh, that awareness that that is is always here it's a fundamental quality of mind, but it can be masked, it can be covered, it can be uh, overlaid by the habits of of uh, thinking and perception and, uh, and conditioning so that that potential for for knowing for awareness is something that's ever present within us uh, and uh, uh, so it can be drawn upon I would say it's alive but it, <laughs> it might be uh, 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 alive but in, inaccessible. Uh, it's uh, it's there as a potential, but it's at, if it's out of reach if it's buried under layers and layers of of um, opinions and uh, and habits and you know, fears and and uh, desires and uh, preoccupations with with uh, uh, sort of personal preferences and such like. Do we have any questions here in the temple? There's a, one or two microphones around, so I'm happy to answer one or two if there's any uh, further interest, things to ask. Very good. Okay, we can call it to a close there today. Thank you very much for your attention, and uh, I hope that um, what's been said today is a benefit, and... Um, I'll be disappearing uh, for a solo retreat time after next weekend. Um, so 
Uh, I won't be around from the 6th until the 27th, but uh, I trust that Amravati will carry on. Of course, it's not a sure thing, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I hope that Amravati will carry on even uh, after I'm, I've disappeared into uh, seclusion from the, the 6th. But um, ne and next weekend I have a weekend retreat I'm leading over at the, uh, the retreat center. This weekend I'm part of a Thai language retreat. So I just stepped out of that for an hour and a half now, but um, next weekend I have a, so a weekend retreat I'm leading there, but then after that I should be disappearing for three weeks. So um, I trust that uh, you will be able to make good use of the teachings and uh, the, uh, that Amaravati will carry on in a, a cohesive and beneficial way. Here one.